apples sooner or later, his incentive is, of course, profits to sell the apples. So whether or not there is an apple um, this year or next year is, is sort of uh, violates the sort of um, action axiom that you know people use means to achieve ends, um, and his ends were uh, based on profit, not on actually consuming an apple sooner or later. Um, what he what he's upset about is the structure of production being gone, not the fact that he can't consume an apple later. In my in my in my view. I don't think that um, it's um, appropriate to, class, to, to say, I mean, if he could hypothetically save half of his apples that he's harvested in this bountiful harvest and save them for next year and sell them, then because he has some degree of market power, he lowers the quantity, increases the price of the apples, and somehow makes more money. But you can't save the apples. This isn't, this isn't an option that's on the table since they would probably go bad. Now I'm extending the example to make it a little bit more complicated, but um, the point is, I would say that his um, original intent isn't to grow one apple to consume one apple, but that his actual intent was to grow apples to sell them in the first place. But is it not true that a year from now there will be fewer apples available for consumption? Well, if this entire apple orchard is gone, actually we would say that there probably would be no apples within this one... Well, so perhaps some people invented some methods to preserve apples. Oh, okay. But uh, no matter how you look at it, apples will not be available the same way a year from now as, as they are available today. And that will make the apple from one year more valuable than an apple today. Is that not true? Um. And that's the only thing. I mean, uh, what you say about entrepreneurship and the rest of it is, is valid. But the question is the value of the apple today, on the one hand, and the value of the apple a year from now. It's no matter how you look at it, there will be fewer apples available, or no apples. Sure, if you say no apples, or even more so. The um, I would if I could like to interject one thing, the entrepreneur can only make a profit because somebody is describing the higher value of that apple. <coughs> so he's only a proxy for the value that other people put on the apples. So he can only take them out of the equation. <laughs> now, um, I, I think we can cut this short for one reason. This is not my main counterexample. My main counterexample is the uh, observatory on the mountaintop where a telescope has to be delivered in time when the uh, building is, construction is finished and installed. Uh, would somebody repeat that shortly, not uh, five minutes, but one minute or less? I like the wedding cake example. If you order a wedding cake for your daughter's wedding one month from today, and the wedding cake arrives two weeks early, it's worthless. If it arrives at the wedding, it's priceless. It's a wonderful thing to have at the wedding. And a week after that wedding, it's worthless again. So the time preference is focused on that time when the wedding takes place, or a birthday cake, or anything that's correlated with time. But I think with the other problem, just ask the simple question, what is the price of an apple? 
What are people with faith? You've got a bumper crop of apples today. They're almost worth pennies. But when they're rare and they have to be brought in from far away and you want an apple, you have to pay more. And that's the market price that comes out of this scenario. Um, but in, in terms of a thought experiment, if we're going to if we're going to put uh, the theory of time preference um, to some test, it violates the Ceteris Paribus condition, where we simply take an item out of thin air, any item, and say, do we prefer it sooner? Do we prefer it later? Well, we violate the Ceteris Paribus condition by saying, oh well, there's not, there won't be apples in the future. It's a it's it's a clumsy thought experiment. Okay, but let's put it this way: one white crow disproves the theory that all crows are black. <clears throat> Period. So if it's a good example or a bad example, if it's if it's a wedding cake, if it's a telescope, any of these, any one of these things, this proves that axiom. It's it may be a powerful market force, and, and we all agree that it is. But it's not that every crow is black. There's one in a thousand is white, or one in a million. Uh, I could offer a reasoning for the telescope. Oh, you, you argue that it's not a, a good counterexample? I, I, I could give you my reasoning. Um, okay. So should I, I can explain the example again. Um, we have an um, astronomer, astronomer extraordinaire, and he wants to build an observatory on top of a hill. Um, the thing is, uh, it will take a year for the observatory to be built. Um, and so I guess to wait for one year for the structure to be uh, completed. On the other hand, if he orders the telescope, it could be there. Uh, he orders the telescope and it's there in a month. And so since he orders the telescope and it's there in a month, um, it shows that uh, he would it, 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 he would rather. Um, uh, uh, sorry, I was making it up. Um, well, you see, you, you are assuming that the telescope, there's a shop and there are telescopes on the shelf and it's just a matter of <laughs> taking one up. But the telescope has to be constructed for that specific purpose. You probably are aware of that every new uh, observatory which is being built in the world today is far more powerful than the last one. So these are unique telescopes made to order and therefore it's not a matter of ordering it and being delivered in one month's time it has to be designed, constructed and so on and it's a matching of the time when both are ready, both factors the building on the one hand and the telescope on the other are at the same place can be installed and put to work and that is the problem. And, and this opens up the problem to a much more general, because these are still individual examples, the uh, Apple telescope, uh, which you might say they are very exceptional. But there is here something which is not at all exceptional, which is very general in our complex economy, there is a problem that the factors of production have to be brought together and the entrepreneur has to make sure that the timing is going to dovetail 
That's the English word, but they, exactly the right time. And uh, we had uh, Keith lecturing on that yesterday, which was very convincing. I just take a little exception to some of the terminology. Could you, and, uh, I, do you remember this uh, curve which Keith had? the contiguous uh, thing, and he talked about the inflection point. Uh, it was a cusp, really. Oh, it's still there. Okay. No, it was on the slide. It wasn't on the... Um, it was on the I had electronic, but I didn't put it on my uh, paper. What, sorry, what was it? The inflection point. So you put, yeah. So it's not nitpicking, uh, but we, we are mathematicians here. Sandeep is one, I am another, and there I know there are some mathematicians. And we are going to correct uh, the terminology. There's nothing wrong with the explanation which, uh, which uh, Keith gave yesterday. But I take exception to the uh, using inflection point. Technically, a mathematician would call this, uh, take a red, and write it cusp, cusp. This is known as a cusp rather than an inflection point. Now, you draw another curve underneath and make the maximum, the local maximum, a smooth one. Yeah. Now this is not a cusp, it's a local maximum. Okay? And where is the inflection point? Actually there are two inflection points. One here. No, point, one point. Well, you've got... No, 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 that's not the inflection. I'm just pointing out this is called a cusp oh, up there. But there is an inflection point. Sandeep, you are a mathematician. <laughs> <laughs> inflection is when the rate of change is zero. Where, where the tangent, the tangent. Yeah. goes through the curve. Oh, okay, right. I'm just you, an you're, you're a mathematician. Okay. Use, yeah. use yeah. red, use red. Okay. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> sound a good mathematician. <laughs> and there is another one there. And, and uh, circle the point. There is just one point. It's not several points. Sorry. Yeah. 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 And also on the other s side. So an inflection point is a point where the tangent goes right through the curve. You see? And, and, and that's an important distinction. Now, the entrepreneur has a job here to determine whether it's a cusp or it's a local maximum of that type. And I have no opinion on that, but perhaps Keith does that. But it's a, a, a refinement of the theory. The point is this. The, uh, future value of the good, which in this case is a factor of production, is not 
a monolithic number. But it depends on the relation to the other factors of production which will have to be brought to the same place to do the assembly. Okay? And that is very important because we don't have a point, we have a whole curve. Whether this type or that type is open to discussion, and I can imagine that there are examples of both, lots of them. I can imagine, I haven't studied this, but it's quite possible. And uh, in any case, the lesson is that we just have to forget about a fixed future value because it all depends on the context and I think that's, uh, that's more than just an exception an example which contradicts the I think we could conclude that time preference is not apodictic it, it may be very important, it may be the usual thing, and, and so on, and it's also probably true that an individual uh, would always prefer a present good to a future good. After all, we have even proverbs to that. Uh, the English proverb is that... Um, bird in the hand? <laughs> Is worth two in the bush. One bird in hand. One bird in the hand is worth a dozen in the bush. And another one is uh, that uh, there are lots of slips between cup and lip. In other words, just because you hold a cup, don't take it for granted that you will drink because it could slip and get spilled and then you forget about it. Okay. I need to come back to this example with the apple. And I want to argue against it. I think again, like with the example with the ice in the summer and the ice in the winter, we're talking about two different goods. One good in the uh, example that I can, uh, in the deal to get an apple now is the actual apple. And the example of getting an apple next year, the object of the, of the deal is an auction on an apple, which is not an apple. Or in your example with the cake, uh, the delivery of the cake on the day of the uh, wedding is a property of the good. So the good is not the, the cake, but the cake delivered on this day. So Mises, or this argument, would say um, the two comparable goods is to get a promise to have a cake delivered on, let's say, the 15th of July, to have to get this promise today, or to get this promise this afternoon, I would prefer to get it this uh, in the morning. So sure that your daughter's wedding is a promise, piece of paper that says, I promise this cake to you today, but there's no cake, there's just a promise. No, What's that worth? It's worthless. Well, it's the, not cake, the, no, wait a minute. the cake isn't baked yet. It will be baked on the 14th of oh. July. Okay. So, and uh, with, with the baker, you know, uh, the, the, the objective of the Gegenstand is that the Gegenstand is the objective of the, yeah, the object of the contract, you know, is uh, the cake on the 15th of July. I mean, and, uh, the date of delivery is a property of the good. 
And uh, the cake and the apple next year, you know, that's the property of the good as well. So the comparable goods would be, you know, having this deal today or having this deal tomorrow. And I would prefer to have it today. That's so, fine. I'm not talking about not preferring it, just a second. Yeah, but that's, what talks, that's what Mises talks about. Okay, but that's, that's why the, it's a, a, not an apodictic thing. It's if you take this apple in that area where the orchard was more wiped out, and you have to truck it in from 100 miles away, that apple is going to cost more. You can't argue against that. If other things being equal, that's his argument also. Well, suppose they grow the same way and uh, they have the same productivity and all this, but you must pay the transport cost. So it's a more valuable thing, it's a more expensive thing to get an apple there where the orchard was wiped out. Then it is today you can sell this apple for a dollar. If you want an apple in that area a year from now, you have to pay two dollars. And after the orchard grows back in, it'll be back to a dollar. Well, I have to cut but this would, debate short. talking about the time preference pieces. <laughs> and, uh, and money, like, doesn't get bad. As you said, it's not a fiat money. But it's, uh, it's uh, can I, I say one more thing, Professor? Please. When I left Hungary, my father bought his way through the border with a gold watch. Yeah. Not a promise from a goldsmith that I will deliver a, a watch yeah. and such and such, but he was the present yeah. in the hand, the bird yeah. in the hand. That's all. So you can't compare present good to future good. They're two different things. Mm. Now, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, this is not central to our interest because this is just one example. This is much more important here. What did you call this? Contiguous? Discontiguous. Hmm? Discontiguous. Disconfigured. Contiguous. Oh, con Discontiguous with a G. Oh, with the G. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, but I don't agree with you for the following reason. Uh, th these are the same goods because with or without the landslide, we are talking about a future apple. So it's, the difference is not between an apple and option on an apple, but the difference is that is there a landslide or isn't there a landslide? And whether there is or there isn't, it's always a future apple we are talking about. But as I say, this is not central to our study. This, I think, is much more important. And I would like to submit this to, the, uh, uh, to a public discussion involving all the ASEAN economists. But I haven't been able to <laughs> engage them in a debate on that. But I would be uh, delighted to uh, uh, get an invitation to debate the idea of time preference, which is uh, in the context of, of uh, manufacturing, where several factors of production have to meet at the same place, and if there is mismatch of timing, there's a loss, and because of that loss, we have we have uh, uh, the situation whereby the future value is not necessarily discounted as compared with the present value. So I'd like to leave it at that and continue my uh, own with my own interpretation of. 
uh, time preference, which is, <coughs> is not a comparison between value of present good and the value of the same future good. This is a false dichotomy as far as I'm concerned. It's a false dichotomy. The true dichotomy is, what is the true dichotomy? The dichotomy again is a Greek word. It's really a choice between only two possibilities, one or the other. So here we are talking about value of present good and value of the same future good, same good at a future date. So I dismiss this as a false dichotomy because you have to refine it and so on and develop a theory of its own. But there is a true dichotomy. I mentioned this already in my very first lecture. Perhaps somebody can recall what the two true dichotomy. The difference between wealth and income. That's right. The dichotomy between wealth and income. And uh, we are not going to define what wealth is and what income is, but just observe as a, a fairly obvious idea that wealth you cannot eat and cannot consume. Whereas income, so if you want to consume wealth, you've got to make a conversion, converting wealth into income. And then you can eat it, you can consume it, you can use it various ways. But wealth in itself is an abstraction, which means that it has to be intact. You cannot take bits and pieces but take it as a whole, like an art object, a, a, a valuable painting or a valuable uh, sculpture or a house or some such thing. Wealth has to be intact. And of course, if you want to have wealth, it the way to having wealth is you have an income and then you at one point convert it into wealth, like buying a house or something. So let's not quibble about the definition of wealth and income. Let's just accept that it can be done and can be made very precise, but that's not our job here. Our job here is to see that there is a very important human activity here which is imperative for all of us because we are all subject to aging. As we go on with life, we'll get older and our deficit, our surplus of income will at one point go into a deficit because our expenditures with medical bills, cost of buying uh, medication and other 
problems coming with senescence will overwhelm our resources. And the way we are trying to compensate for this, which is a natural thing, that our productivity will decline with aging. We want wealth. So while young, we have income, and so much of the income we dedicate to converting to wealth, and then later on, where our needs will overwhelm our resources or our surplus of uh, energy, we can convert wealth back into income. That's a universal law, absolutely no exception. So we face that problem, the dichotomy of income and wealth. And at that stage we are talking about converting income into wealth and wealth into income. And I would say this is the true dichotomy incorporated under the heading time preference. So the next question is how can we improve on direct conversion? Because direct conversion means hoarding. As you convert income into wealth, that could be in hoarding. And then, this is what we did in the first lecture, ask the question, what is the most suitable <laughs> substance which would help us to make that conversion? And then we refined Menger's idea of marketability. We have two types, marketability in the large and marketability in the small. And marketability in the small is a property of some substance which is the easy or with the smallest amount of losses we can make the conversion. As a general rule, all conversions involve some losses, but if you can minimize this loss, then the conversion will be most efficient. So we made the observation that the uh, most suitable substance to uh, do this conversion, direct conversion, are the precious metals, in monetary metals, in particular gold and silver. Uh, we are not going to scrutinize this any further at this point. Let's just assume that the two monetary metals, that's one of the big reasons why they evolve, because they have that property that they can be uh, they can help you. They are your tools, your raw material which you need if you want to make the conversion from income to wealth. And then this hoarding from conversion from wealth back to income. All right. Now, we can, as it turns out, we can improve even on that. And the way to improve it is, uh, this is again something I have already mentioned, is through exchange. So just as Manger in his Origin of Money talks about the uh, idea of uh, 
passing from direct exchange to indirect exchange, which means passing from barter to the monetary economy. The same applies here in the theory of interest. We have direct conversion of income into wealth and wealth into income, but we can have indirect conversion, which is the exchange. And the exchange has great advantages, very important So I'm asking you, what is the biggest advantage of exchanging income for wealth and wealth for income over the direct conversion of hoarding and disholding. What's the big, very important advantage of the exchange over uh, hoarding and disholding? Probably it's, uh, you can use uh, many more media of exchange. You can not only use durables such as gold, but use basically all sorts of um, services, uh, abstract goods. Uh, and you need not just have concrete goods uh, which are durable as well. Uh, um, Rudy? No, it, it's time. You save time. Instead of mm. spending years hoarding and building up your capital, you get it instantly in return for a, a stream of cash flow. Did, did, the, first one, did the first one say time? Yeah. No. No, Rudy, you are right. That's that's, and we, we please make sure that you understand this. Well, I'm trying to. It's it's very important because just imagine I I gave you the example of a young man who is working as a member of the labor force, but he has ideas, his vision, and he. It's not that he doesn't like manual labor. That's not it. The fact is that as a laborer, as a member of the labor force, he cannot put his ideas into practice. In order to be able to do that, he would have to become an entrepreneur. entrepreneur. But there is a big stumbling block. What is the big stumbling block? He needs capital. Well, most of us are not born uh, in wealth, right? Most of us are born in ordinary circumstances, so we don't have a capital to start out in life. And therefore, this young man, ambitious, having excellent ideas, um, would like to put it in practice, is working under this handicap that he would have to start converting income into wealth directly by hoarding. Now, because he needs capital to start his own business, he wants to quit the labor force. And that is time consuming. And in some cases, even five, ten years. But these are the best years of his life. So he's wasted. Not only he himself is the loser but also society at large. <clears throat> because we all would benefit if this young man could immediately get started and put his ideas into practice, then we would be all the beneficiaries 
of uh, better production facilities, great new inventions, and all kinds of <coughs> various advantages. But because this young man is forced to do this long and labor-intensive uh, saving, hoarding gold or silver or what have you, therefore, and, and in the meantime he is getting older and his life, uh, part of his life what he could devote to developing his ideas, putting them into practice, would be shorter accordingly. Uh, therefore we are older losers. So is that, uh, is, is that convincing that uh, the exchanging income for wealth and wealth for income is a great improvement. It's important for all of us. It's important for society. And therefore, uh, this was a very retrogressive idea of Aristotle, which through St. Thomas of Aquinas was taken over by the church. I would say pretty uncritically, and sorry to say that because they should have realized much earlier that this is not benefiting society at all. You've got to facilitate this idea of uh, lending and borrowing. Alright, so that is the thing. Now, the next point is that once this is out of the way, this problem is dealt with and the church accepted the idea that it's for the benefit of society to allow people to exchange rather. Oh, by the way, I want to do justice to the church because, because uh, it may look pretty one-sided as I have so far presented this. But it's also true that some of the church fathers, and they uh, are usually referred to as the scholastic fathers, could you? The very early, goes back to especially Spain, Salamanca, there was a school. Was it Dom Dominicans or? Dominicans. Dominicans. In, in the city of Salamanca, they had the university and that was the center, but that idea spread. And the scholastic fathers were way ahead of their time and ahead of the uh, dogmatic foggy bottom <laughs> administration of the church who ran the show and declared these dogmas and they said the usury laws are too narrow because they should allow changing income to wealth and wealth and income. That's not the language they used, but the message was the same. They were talking about dry exchange and uh, real exchange and uh, in, generally speaking they advocated the <coughs> real bills, not calling them. And then that was way before Adam Smith of course came out with his theory. But the scholastic fathers were very, very progressive and they had brilliant ideas, economic ideas. 
And it's a great pity that the church leadership, the hierarchy did not, in Rome, did not pay more attention to them than they did. Well, by the way, some of them were martyrs, like Giordano Bruno was burned in Venice? No, Florence. Rome. Rome? Rome, Rome. Ah, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in Rome. Yeah, so, you know, I'm not going into that because it's too controversial, but I would like to pay homage to the scholastic fathers who had a very clear vision and they were hundreds of years ahead of the rest of us, I would say, because it wasn't just the church hierarchy, but it was the general uh, level of knowledge. People didn't recognize them for what they were. So let's just be fair about this. And uh, they did advocate the uh, loosening up of the usury laws and allowing exchange of income wealth and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they uh, presented their case at one of the uh, church councils. Um, well, I, I didn't really come prepared to discuss church history. But uh, what happened at this council, which was in uh, 1400s, I guess, and the uh, council decided in their favor and they said yes the usury laws do not apply to this exchange of uh, income and wealth and vice versa and ten years passed and the reactionary uh, party within the church wasn't satisfied with the council decision. So 10 years later they went back to the Pope and said no, these, the council was wrong, please uh, make an announcement uh, to that effect and let's go back to the original interpretation. So the Pope had no choice, he had to uh, appoint a new study group and so on and in new course he came out with the decision which confirmed the council. So the scholastic fathers were justified in doing uh, this revision, which is very interesting. But that's just a tidbit which I thought was interesting too. So I'm, uh, all right, now we already had some discussion. I want to add after the break about 10 minutes okay. uh, to finish what I was going to say and there will be another discussion. Okay, so we'll be back in 15 minutes. Thanks very much, Professor. Thank